Well, at the outset, I want to um, introduce you. It's probably not an introduction for most of you to two books, most excellent. I've, I've mentioned some before. Uh, Hugh Martin, The Atonement. If you remember last year or a year and a half ago, maybe even a little longer by now, uh, when Pastor Sharp was preaching Sunday morning services through Hebrews, he had recourse to Hugh Martin's The Atonement quite often. Excellent book. The other one, which is a modern classic, is John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. You see, it's a small book. This is worth its weight in gold. Uh, fantastic. And I was, I was deep and heavy into both of these books uh, this week, not to mention years past. They're just, they're, they're excellent. Uh, that's all I'll say about them. But I will, I'll probably quote from both of those men in the course of the hour this morning. Now, uh, we've come to question 25, the priesthood of Christ in the time of his humiliation. And with that in mind, uh, let's read just a few verses out of the opening of the book of Revelation. This is a wonderful uh, doxology by the Apostle John where uh, we see his, we see the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christ's office of prophet, king, and priest all wrapped into one. So we see the three persons of the Trinity, and then and then honing in on Christ, we see the three offices. Really, in very short script here, in just three verses. So we'll read this, and then we'll begin this morning's subject. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him who loved us and loosed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God, even his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Help us to see him as he's opened up in the scriptures. Help us to apprehend him with the Spirit's aid and help us to embrace Him, to love Him, and to, to draw from His own person, God and man in one person, all that we need to please You. In His name we pray. Be with us in this hour. Amen. So last week we were looking at Christ as prophet specifically in the time of his humiliation. So we were looking at question 24 coupled with question 27. 27 being uh, a description, a catalog, if you will, of all of those aspects of Christ and his humiliation, uh, which begins like this, question 27. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition. And so we, we really emphasized his birth. We moved on from that, but we, we, we wanted to spend some time looking at just the sheer act of his being born, which 
if you remember, I said was the first prophetic act of his time in humiliation, his, his first overture to the world, if you will. And we heard the angels say to the shepherds in the fields, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And so uh, it would have been wonderful to have time to slowly move through the course of his life uh, as he grew up, as Isaiah says, uh, in Isaiah 53, as he grew up as a tender plant before him, that is, before the Father, and learned obedience through the things that he suffered. But we really just concentrated on Christ's declarations. I am the life. I am the water of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world to show how he was freely offering himself to all who came within the, 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 the orb of his voice. He was offering himself. And in fact, if you remember that last great day of the feast when he stood and cried, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So we really looked at that, that overture, if you will, of, of the free offer of Christ speaking as prophet, revealing the will of God for the salvation of men. Now, in two weeks, we'll look at his work as prophet in the time of his exaltation, and we'll look more then, not so much at the free offer, but of his gathering the lambs to himself, that is, those that the Father has given him, speaking to them, effectually calling them, irresistibly, if you will. Uh, we'll look at that in more depth. Uh, but before we get there, we are right here now squarely on question 25, which in some ways is the entire center point of the world, not, not chronologically, but uh, morally speaking. We're looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. So question 25. I'll, uh, and again, in question 25, we want to split it up. This morning we're going to look at his work as priest in the time of his humiliation. Next week, we're going to continue looking at his priesthood, but in his estate of exaltation, interceding continually for us, saving us to the uttermost. Uh, it, it, it's, we really have to have these two things together. Uh, it's, it's one work of the priesthood. In humiliation, in his oblation, as the theologians call it, that is his offering up of himself, his sacrifice, his bloodshedding, that's his oblation in keeping with the theme of the Old Testament sacrifices, and then his intercession, which is typed out, and we want to look at this in some detail this morning, uh, by the high priest offering the sacrifice. Uh, as soon as he walked through the gate that surrounded the tabernacle of old, and then moving forward from there into the tabernacle itself, and then through the veil into the Holy of Holies, there to present the blood before the mercy seat, which was the throne, the throne of grace, if you will, of the majesty of God. There was the Shekinah glory. And there he was offering the blood. Uh, and, and that is a wonderful picture of Christ interceding for us, having gone through the veil into heaven itself. It's, it's, it's just a wonderful Wonderful picture. And the, the apostles in the New Testament are at pains, particularly in Hebrews, where we'll center around quite a bit this morning, particularly in Hebrews, showing that interpreting the Old Testament texts in light of the accomplished redemption of Jesus Christ. So that's what we want to look at. So the first part of question 25 is this. 
Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. That's what we'll look at this morning. Next week, in the time of his exaltation, we'll finish up question 25 in the context of question 28, which is the estate of his exaltation. And, and that's this brief statement, and in making continual intercession for us. Uh, so that's how we're splitting things up. So if we take all of question 25, there's four great verbs in it. I lo- this is one thing I love about the Shorter Catechism, is you hone in on those verbs, uh, those action words, uh, that describe the action of God, the action of the Father, the action of the Son, the action of the Holy Spirit in effectual calling. It, it, it is wonderfully edifying just to hone in on those verbs, pull them out, meditate on them a little bit. This is the act of God for our salvation. And when you exhaust all of those words, there's nothing left for us to do with regards to our salvation. Nothing left. He has done it all himself. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But especially as, as we look at this accomplishing of it in the flesh, we see the work of Christ as our priest. So you look at these four verbs that are in question 25. Offering, satisfying, reconciling, interceding. These are all the great reason, the defining reason for Christ's assuming flesh, for the incarnation, for the Word made flesh. This is the great reason. A a body was not necessary it wasn't absolutely necessary for his work as prophet or as king. Uh, he, was, he was prophet and king before he was ever in the flesh of Israel in the Old Testament. It's, it's not necessary, absolutely I say, but for his work as priest, a body was absolutely necessary. It was indispensable. Uh, for every high priest, and I'm quoting now from Hebrews 8, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man, that is Christ, have somewhat also to offer. And so, again, quoting a a verse that I've quoted a lot, uh, as he comes into the world, as Christ comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. So, Christ's priesthood of all three offices is is preeminently the office, and I'm quoting here from now, here uh, now from Hugh Martin, Christ's priesthood is preeminently the office, the foundation office, which, which is just to say that all his work as prophet and as king of the church is, is grounded upon, founded upon his work as priest. So you think of, of his work as prophet. What does he do? He reveals the will of God for our salvation. But it's a salvation that's procured no other way but by the priestly work of sacrifice. He's revealing the will of God for our salvation, but how is our salvation obtained? It's through the priestly work of sacrifice. And as king, he subdues us to himself, he rules us and defends us, but he does so on the sole basis of his purchase of us by his blood. Purchasing us, he subdues us. That's the work of the Spirit in effectual calling. And it all springs from his shedding his blood and offering himself. He purchased us by his blood. But the purchase, and we remember the words here of Jonathan Edwards, the purchase 
didn't begin with the shedding of his blood. And that's a very important point. Uh, we often think of it that way. Well, that's when the purchase began. But it began the moment he entered into the time of his humiliation. He began to suffer. He began to purchase our redemption. As soon as he was incarnate, and this is Edwards from last week, as soon as he was incarnate, the purchase began. And the whole time of his humiliation till the morning he rose from the dead was taken up in this purchase. Well, how so? Edwards goes on to, to explain it. He offered himself, remember, and this is, this is Hebrews, he offered himself without spot to God. He didn't just offer himself to God, he offered himself without spot. Well, those two words, without spot, is, is in one sense, the, the, the whole biography of the 33 years of Christ's life, without spot. He was going through life without spot. Peter says effectually, or effectively the same thing. We were redeemed, says, says Peter, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So, in essence, his whole life, holy, harmless, undefiled, again, drawing from Hebrews, his whole life was preparing for the sacrifice of himself. Uh, Herman Ritterboss sums it up well when he says, his whole life, he was on his way to the cross. Well, this is what he had in view all along, and he was learning obedience, even from his infancy, as he was learning to walk, as he was learning to talk. Above all, he was learning obedience. He was learning to obey. So you could, you could say that, that his, the holiness of his life, or his holy life, was not something in addition to his sacrifice. It wasn't as if he was holy and then he offered himself, but his holy life was the offering. It was his offering, an offering without blemish and without spot. That's, that's a crucial aspect in keeping with the Old Testament types. And again, we'll come to that shortly as we get closer to the cross. But now we're just following him through his life, looking at this holy obedience that, that made him a lamb without spot and without blemish. This, says Owen... John Owen, this was the unseen glory as he walked through life in perfect obedience to the Father. This was the unseen glory that accompanied him in all he did, in all that he suffered. And if men had seen it, they had not crucified the Lord of glory. Here, says Owen, was the one instance of that holiness of God in the law. Here it was fully represented in our nature. The only time ever in a human being that the law of God was fully represented and it was in the person of God in the flesh Christ our Savior and it was for the express purpose so that and now I'm quoting from Romans or at least paraphrasing so that as, as by the disobedience of one man many were made sinners so by the obedience of this one that is Christ many will be made righteous that was the purpose of his obedience so, so now we're moving forward and we come at last as he's coming to his one supreme act of obedience which sums up and brings all the obedience of his 33 years uh, into a head as it were as he's coming to the cross. And all his other acts were leading to it. They were preparing for it, that is for the cross. Uh, I said in the 33 years and that's true but it, it, it goes far beyond and far before the 33 years that, that everything was pointing to it. His whole course of mediation, 
since the first sin in paradise, since the beginning of the world, his whole course of mediation between God and man was all preparing for the cross. That's why we have the types and shadows in the Old Testament. It wasn't as if when Christ came into the world, he said, now, um, let's see, what would be a good example for me to, to, to go forward using? Oh, look, this is a great example in the Old Testament. No, the Old Testament was written after the eternal councils that had planned it all along. So God was laying out a blueprint, if you will, for the work of Christ to come. Everything in the law was foreshadowing Christ's death on the cross. Particularly the priesthood, which is our subject this morning. Everything in the priesthood, I should say, everything that the priesthood was, was for the purpose of shadowing forth the work of Christ in his obedience, in his life, and in his death. Hebrews, we'll quote from Hebrews again, says that all priests under the law were serving as a figure of the good things to come. So, so when we look at the tabernacle, which we're about to come to, every article in the tabernacle was expressly provided for the priestly service. That's what it was provided for. That's why God ordained it. So Hebrews 8.5 says this, and this is a wonderful window into all. <laughs> Hebrews 8.5, the priests who they served for an example and a shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. Well, this, this, is, a, this is a wonderful glimpse into the plan of God. There was Moses in the mount and he's receiving instructions from God for, for every detail as to how to build the tabernacle. God's giving it to him. And he says, see that you make it exactly as I'm telling you. Well, again, this wasn't an ad hoc plan on God's part. He, he wasn't just coming up with the idea. It was actually, in effect, the pattern that God showed Moses in the mount was the eternal council. It was the transcript, if you will, of the eternal council struck in the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son for the redemption, for the salvation of all those who the Father in love predestined, or rather, all those who, whom He foreknew to be conformed to the image of His Son, which we've been looking at in the morning sermons the last few weeks. All those concerning whom He predestined in love. Paul puts it another way. He says he refers to this, what we're talking about now, he refers to it as the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that eternal purpose, and Paul even mentions the principalities and powers and the angels when referring to this eternal purpose that's now made manifest in Christ Jesus. And, 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 and Peter refers to them and says the angels themselves desire to look into these things. And here as we come to the tabernacle and make our approach and work our way through, there at the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies are the two cherubim. And, and their wings are outspread, touching one another, on the mercy seat, overshadowing the ark. And where are they looking? They're looking down. They're looking downward. 
as if to say the angels are desiring to look into these things. It's such a marvel and such a wonder that they'll be praising him for eternity and continually along with us, the redeemed, be peering into these things, always learning more, always having more ground, as it were, and material uh, to fall down and say, holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Well, the tabernacle points us to all these things. And so there we come. Even before the entrance is the altar of burnt sacrifice, which we referenced earlier, to show the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world manifest, as, as Peter says, in these last days for you. Everything stands upon this. Everything, everything in the tabernacle follows from this. There's the altar, the very first point that you come to, the altar of burnt sacrifice. And then you move forward into the tabernacle itself, and you have the lampstand on your left, you have the showbread on your right. Again, these are figures of good things to come in Christ made flesh. And we, we talked about it just a little bit last week. He's the light of the world. He's the bread of life come down from heaven. These things are typing, shadowing him forth, showing him in the course of his life, if you will, uh, not just in the time of his humiliation, but, but certainly, and in some ways, in a more perfect way, in the time of his exaltation, in which we are right now this morning. Well, then you move forward with the lampstand and the showbread, and you come to the altar of incense and the veil, into the Holy of Holies itself, which, which uh, even thinking about it, even opening your mouth and speaking of that motion going through the veil into the Holy of Holies, there's a, there's a sense of, of trembling. I hope when we're thinking about these things, it's, it's, uh, you feel as if your mouth should be shut and you should just... Behold, if even that. Well, so we come through the holy of, into the Holy of Holies, and again, this is typing out. It's, it's Christ having accomplished redemption as our great high priest, having made the offering, going through the tabernacle, through the veil, enters with his own blood into heaven itself, which, as we read in Hebrews, is the, is, is the tabernacle made without hands, the true tabernacle. And there he is now in his estate of exaltation interceding for us. Well, this is what we'll look at next week. So this, all of these things, and we could certainly go into more detail, uh, but all of this is the, is the true substance of the pattern that God showed Moses in the mount. It's all typing out a blueprint, again, if you will, of Christ's doing the work of a priest, namely of the great high priest, accomplishing redemption for us. So, so now we come then. That's, that's all of the typology. And it's not just fanciful, fun things to think about. It's the ground of our faith when we understand, when we read in the Gospels, we read the account of the crucifixion, and then we go to the epistles, Peter and especially Paul. This is the, this is the, the ground of our faith. If we don't know these things... If we don't know these things, we can't act a lively faith upon Christ Jesus, which is the essence of our justification. It's the essence as well as, as of our sanctification. So it's, it's crucial that we understand these things. Don't just think of it as, oh, that's a neat connection. This is how we are to meditate upon the work of Christ. This is the Christian way of thinking. So finally, Luke says, when the time was come, and this is actually fairly early in the gospel, which, which tells us something, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, I mean. 
he says, when the time was come for him to be received up into heaven, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so he comes into Jerusalem and there he is for, for many chapters in the Gospel of Luke, actually. But finally, they lead him away to be crucified. Which, which again, we were coming to the supreme act of his work as high priest. A supreme act of obedience. So they led him away to be crucified, but the reality, as we know, was, was rather something else. He was offering up himself. He was offering up himself. And he was doing so Again, says Hebrews, he was offering himself up through the eternal spirit unto God. And here we come again to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in, in his life. And I, I, I want to emphasize this because it's throughout. There he was at the incarnation. Uh, Mary conceived in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was forming from the substance of Mary. That body that, that Christ was in need of to make the offering, to act as high priest. There, so there he was at the incarnation. At the baptism, you see him there descending as a dove. Uh, and by the Spirit, he was anointed and filled with the Spirit without measure, the Apostle John says. He was filled without measure for all the graces, all the gifts that he needed in order to do his work that was before him. His work was before him, says Isaiah. His reward was with him and his work was before him. A wonderful encapsulation of of so much we could talk about Jesus. But there his work was before him. From his baptism, particularly, onward. And then the Spirit thrust him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And we can see several other points uh, in the Gospels. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit said, Father, I rejoice that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. There again is prophetic work, revealing, hiding, revealing. It's the work of a prophet. It's the work of the Father as well. The Father and the Son and the Spirit in, in concert, as it were. So then we come to the, the, the crucifixion where he offered himself up through the Spirit unto God. And so there he was in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, a crucial moment. Because there he's, he's battling God and man in two natures with all the human weakness and all the divine strength in a mysterious way united in one man. But there he is. He's he, he, he sore amazed, Mark says in the gospel, sore amazed and exceedingly sorrowful unto death, falling forward onto his na- knees, crying, crying through the spirit, I might add. Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There was was the definitive, if you will, uh, in his mind, in, in his humanity and in his divinity. But particularly, we're thinking of the weakness of his humanity there. There was was... He was setting his face like a flint. He had already done so from his infancy. But now was the definitive moment where he was offering himself up to God through the eternal spirit. We we can't leave out the ministry of the Holy Spirit with regards to the human nature of Christ. It was utterly indispensable for him to offer himself up for, for us in our nature. So, offering himself up through the eternal spirit without spot, without spot unto God. Well, the offering itself, 
which is the first verb in question 25, accomplish two things, and those are the next two verbs, satisfaction and reconciliation. Uh, Satisfying divine justice and reconciling us to God. It wasn't as if he did three things, so to speak. The act was the offering. And in the offering, two things were accomplished. Or by the offering, two things were accomplished. Satisfaction and reconciliation. It was all accomplished in that single act of offering himself up. So what is satisfaction? Not as if you don't know. I I know you're, you're all theologians in here. If we sit under the preaching week after week, we're, we're, we're amateur theologians. But anyhow, so I'll ask the question, what is satisfaction? And Edwards answers it, Jonathan Edwards answers it for us very succinctly. I'll just quote from him. The satisfaction of Christ was his answering the demands of the law on man, which were consequent upon the breach of the law. So we're going back to the garden, to Adam. There he transgressed. He violated the law of God. And if God is to remain God, that is, if his holiness and righteousness is not to be compromised, which is impossible that it would be, there must be satisfaction for the transgression. And it must be meted out on the nature that sinned. So Adam and all descended from him are under this weight of eternal obligation to satisfy the justice of God. That's the responsibility that man had the moment he sinned. God's justice must be satisfied. And it must be satisfied in and by our nature. So, in other words, satisfaction is punishment accomplished. That's a good way to remember it. It's punishment accomplished. It was due to man. It must be meted out to man. And in this case, Christ was taking man's punishment, but it was the same nature. Nature for nature. Punishment was due to nature, and it was our nature that the judgment fell upon. So it was Christ taking man's punishment upon himself, thus satisfying divine justice, as question 25 tells us, satisfying divine justice. But he wasn't satisfying, or he wasn't receiving the punishment for every man's sin. And here we come to the doctrine of of limited or definite atonement. He, He was not, if we take... If we, take, if, we, if we take the example and the type and the rule, I'll say, the rule of the Old Testament priesthood, we can't possibly think, we're really not allowed to, if we're biblically minded, to make this atonement universal. Because the work of the priest was not universal. It was for a particular people under a particular covenant. And that's, it's, it's indispensable. And it's plain on the face of it if we just look at what the Bible has to say about these things. So, whose punishment was he taking? He was taking every man within the bounds of the covenant in which the priest served. So the priest and the people were all one in one covenant. They were all one in one covenant. And we have to see the priestly work of Christ in exactly the same light. Everything else follows and it's a parable, the parallel and so is this. Must be understood in this light. Christ and his people And when we say his people, we need to keep in mind, all that the Father has given him, those are his people. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Well, at that point on the face of it, Israel is being thought of. He's the seed of the woman following through Abraham's seed, David, and so his people is the people of Israel. But but again, there's typology even 
in the people of Israel. Uh, there are real people, there's no doubt. But again, they're shadowing forth the elect of God, those whom the Father has given him. And so as priest, he's shedding his blood, he's making atonement for all those the Father has given him. All are one in the covenant, Christ and his people. And this is just, again, it's so crystal clear uh, as you go through the pages of the epistles in the New Testament as they're interpreting these things for us apostolically with divine authority. So Hebrew says, both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, Behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. It, it's a wonderful passage in Hebrews 2. I mean, the whole, the, that whole, uh, I've already been touting Hebrews 1, but bring Hebrews 2 into it. Read those two chapters together, and you just have a tremendous uh, overview of Christ in his divine nature, taking on human nature, accomplishing redemption for us as high priest so that he might sympathize with our infirmities and succor those that are in need of help who are being tempted. Because in all points he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So here, Hugh Martin says something very significant. He says, in this light that we've just been talking about, about the peop- Christ and his people, those whom the Father has given him, being one in one covenant, he says, Christ's death seen in this light is seen to be the real infliction of the originally threatened curse upon man himself. It's a tremendous statement, and it really unifies the entire Bible. So, again, all the sacrifices under the law pointed to this. You, you have... And let's, let's just go through a couple of instances. You, you have the law and the prophets, and then the apostles interpreting both. In the law, you have, the, in the opening words of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1, in the very early verses, this is, this is God's instruction to the people of Israel. If any man bring an offering to the Lord, let him offer a male without blemish at the door of the tabernacle before the Lord, and he shall put his hand upon the head of the offering. There's imputation the transference of man's sin onto the, 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 the person, if you will, of the sacrifice. And again, the lambs and the goats and the bulls, they could never take away sin, we, we read in Hebrews. They never could do it. It was typing out the true way that sins are taken away, which is, of, of course we know, only in Christ. I mean, that, that, is, that is the A in the alphabet of Christian doctrine. He shall put his hand upon the head of the offering and kill it and it shall be accepted to make atonement for him. So there, there's the great, in, in, in succinct words, the great type. That's the law and you come to the prophets. Isaiah 53, which is the classic exposition of the high priestly offering up of Christ of himself. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And again, if you, if you see this as middle ground in the prophets between the law, the types of the priestly work in the tabernacle, and the work of Christ in the last few chapters of every account of the gospel, uh, and then the interpretation of it by the apostles, this is like the middle ground of it. You can look back so clearly, but you can look forward so clearly. And so Isaiah 53, he has brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and I'm only quoting just, just a few little, little short clauses here. 
He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is, he shall put his hand upon the head of the offering. There's a transference of sins going on from the sins of the people that he foreknew, whom he predestined in love, onto the head of his suffering servant, Jesus Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. That was the satisfying of God's justice right there in human nature. Human nature was satisfying it, but it was human nature united with the divine nature in one person forever, hanging on the cross. It's it's utterly incredible. But again, I mean, the reason we want to know these things is to adore. It's for doxology. Not only so, but for our faith. There's incredible power in believing these things, in meditating upon them, in believing them, and embracing them. In doing so, we're meditating on Christ. We're believing on Christ. We're embracing Christ. And we're drawing from Him all the resources that He purchased for us. Namely, Himself. Well, then we move into the New Testament here. And again, there's so many texts. And we've already quoted many of them in previous weeks. Uh, But Galatians 3. This is just the classic text that, that, that in an unbroken line from Leviticus to Isaiah and now to the Apostle Paul in Galatians, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. You just see the unity. And, and the unity is all gathering around like so many angels and men and just bowing before the central glory of Jesus Christ and in what he accomplished. Not for himself, but for his people. So, there, and we'll draw from Matthew here in his account of the final hours of Christ. There he was hanging on the cross, making oblation. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land, says Matthew. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was the true cry of a true man and truly God at the same time. It's a mystery. It, 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 it is covered in darkness for us but it will be little by little in glory, unveiled, but never fully, never fully. And when he had cried this, when he cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. Well, I want to quote from John Murray now out of Redemption Accomplished and Applied as as we, we close this out. This is Murray. We almost hesitate to say so. And he's thinking about Christ on the cross. We almost hesitate to say so, but it must be said. It is God in our nature, forsaken of God. That almost sounds like something from one of the ancient creeds that, that we, we dare even to believe because it sounds maybe like it's crossing a line. But, but Murray is saying it. Even though he's hesitating, he's saying it. It is God in our nature, forsaken of God. The cry from the tree evinces nothing less than the abandonment that is the wages of sin. The lost will eternally suffer in the satisfaction of justice, yet they will never satisfy it. But Christ satisfied justice. He bore the unrelieved and unmitigated damnation of sin and He finished it. 
Glory to God. And so now God and man are reconciled in finishing it, in finishing our iniquities, in making satisfaction. He reconciled us to God. There's no more wrath. There's no more curse for those whom the Father has given, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, I I, I say He reconciled us to God forever, which is true. There's no doubt about it. He did it and no one else, no man. But you can also put it the other way because the Apostle puts it the other way as well. It is God, says Paul, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. There's the eternal electing love of God. It was the Father behind everything that His servant, the Son, did. He was in Christ reconciling us to Himself For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, that sums it up again, like Paul does in Galatians 3. This is one of those verses that we come back to again and again to contemplate the glory of God in Christ. And so, Murray, I'll finish Murray's quote, and with this we we, we end this morning. And so Murray says, This is the most solemn spectacle in all of history. A spectacle unparalleled, unrepeated, and unrepeatable. Here we are spectators of a wonder, the praise and glory of which eternity will not exhaust. Well, again, what a doxology by Murray. It's wonderful. Well, that's the high priestly work of Christ. Executing the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. Put very nicely in question 25. And then next week now we'll come to his making continual intercession for us in glory in his estate of exaltation. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these things and we thank you above all for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.